Welcome to Beckbeck Voices. My name is Jess Simons and today I'm speaking with Ian Crawford, a professor of planetary science and astrobiology at Beckbeck. As you probably know, all eyes are on the skies following the successful launch of SpaceX's Falcon Heavy, now the most powerful operational rocket in the world, which took off from Cape Canaveral in Florida last week and looks to be piloting us towards a new era of space exploration. Professor Crawford is an advisor to the European Space Agency and Vice President of the Royal Astronomical Society, and he joins us today on Beckbeck Voices to tell us what we can possibly expect from this latest venture into the universe. Welcome, Professor Crawford. Tell us a bit about yourself first. Uh, let's take a look at your background and the kind of work that you've been doing with, with Birkbeck's uh, planetary science and astrobiology department. Well, I'm an astronomer by background, and I, I was an astronomer uh, for many years until I came to Birkbeck in 2003. Uh, and since I've been at Birkbeck, uh, my responsibilities have been to establish a, a degree program in Earth uh, planetary science and astronomy. Um, basically, and my main responsibility at Birkbeck is to manage this degree program in planetary science with astronomy and to conduct uh, research in planetary science. Okay, so like you said, you've been an astronomer, you've obviously been quite a leading figure um, in the planetary sciences and astrobiology world for quite some time. As I mentioned before, the, the launch of Falcon Heavy, let's take a look at that. What do you think this means for space exploration going forward? I think it's very, I mean, this is the Falcon Heavy and the SpaceX initiative is a part of a, um, an attempt by commercial space companies to get into space activities that formerly were just in the purview of governments and government space agencies. So I think it is very exciting. It's, um, it's exciting from mainly because of the, the, the likelihood that it will reduce the cost of access to space. And really all of the limiting factor in exploring space, however you look at it, the limiting factor really is the cost of getting there. So the fact that these commercial companies like SpaceX are now um, demonstrating that they can get things into space much cheaper than the government funded programs that we've had so far. Yeah, it is very enabling in the context of uh, what, what we can do in the future. Does it place any limits, limits on space exploration at being a commercial venture or becoming a commercial venture? I don't think it places limits. No, I think it opens it opens up possibilities by making by enabling by ensuring there's there's more actors um, to whom would be space explorers can go and uh, and solicit launch services from. Sometimes without the bureaucratic um, uh, hurdles that you get with a government space program. So I think both by reducing costs and by um, making a wider range of activities possible, it's, it's actually going to broaden the potential, the field for future space activities, not, not constrain it. So in terms of your research into space exploration, what do you think are some of the key things that we'll be looking for over the next even decade with this sort of new venture into space, this new commercialised way of looking at it? Well, most of my research, uh, on, on most of my planetary science research is focused on the moon and, and has been for, for, a, for, a, for a long time now. Um, and I think the access to, I mean, I think the moon still has a, is, is important for multiple reasons. It's got a lot to tell us scientifically about the history of the solar system and the origin of the Earth and the Earth-Moon system together. Um, it's also potentially interesting from the point of view of, of um, developing for resources that would help us both explore the moon itself and develop activities in moon-earth moon space um, and, and expand activities in a way that probably won't be possible if we have to just rely on uh, energy and material resources mined from the earth and 
carted up out of Earth's huge gravity into space. Um, so I think the Moon has a, a scientific role, but also a role uh, as a potential, still still to be assessed, but potentially it could have raw, raw material resources which will be of um, value economically. Um, and, and But all of these require access. So both science and commercial activities uh, on the Moon or are in near-Earth space it all it all hinges on access. So the cheaper access can become, the more of this activity we're likely to see. Um, are there any environmental impacts into the type of lunar mining that you're talking about? Whether we, in the short term, any any utilization of lunar resources is going to be quite small scale. We're not be when we're talking about strip mining the moon to for materials to import to the Earth. I think if that ever happens, that's a long way off. We're talking about quite modest utilisation of lunar resources to help facilitate lunar exploration itself. So, for example, if you wanted to set up a moon base like an Antarctic research station. So actually, this is quite a good analogy, I think. Um, I mean, in Antarctica, there are a number of um, uh, human bases like the McMurdo base and the Concordia base and Halley Station. Uh, and these, these, these provide a scientific infrastructure for science on the Antarctic continent that wouldn't be possible otherwise. A, a huge range of different sciences, geology, biology, astronomy, uh, climate science, all the rest. Um, and I think lunar science would benefit similarly from kind of an Antarctic style research station. But just as if you're in Antarctica, you don't import water from South America or the United States, you utilize the local water. And, and, right, so so you localize, you, and the same would would be apply on the moon. If you wanted to provision a moon base with water and hydrogen and oxygen and, and things, if you can source these materials locally rather than to carry them up from the earth, this would make the whole activity of establishing a moon base much more economic. So in the short term, we're thinking of, i.e., the next few decades, uh, lunar resources are going to be quite modest, and they'd be designed or utilized to support human operations on the surface of the moon and so that's going to have quite a small scale and it's unlikely to have a, a very significant impact on the on the lunar environment now longer term you you might imagine as a, if a space economy develops you might want to start sourcing uh, metals uh, rare earth elements other materials on the moon for use in space to build spacecraft in space uh, from materials sourced in space rather than having to drag them up from the earth all the time um, and that would then become gradually snowball into a much larger commercial operations, which could then potentially have a, an impact on the lunar environment. So I think it's, it's, it becomes important to establish a, um, an international legal framework within which these activities would happen so that, so that, so that negative consequences of these activities are, are minimised. Um, but but I would just say there is a, there is an important difference between considering the environment of the moon and considering the environment of the Earth, or say the environment of Antarctica, um, and and one of the reasons we're rightly very uh, protective of places like Antarctica. So these Antarctic research stations have very stringent environmental safeguards. Uh, but one of the reasons for that is of course we share this planet with other living things, and and our commercial activities uh, can damage biospheres, which. It, which are which are not our well we're part of the biosphere but we're, <laughs> we're damaging other living other living habitats are being um, damaged by our by our activities um, now this is something that doesn't happen wouldn't happen on the moon because the moon has no life of its own it has no indigenous 
biology of any kind. So the, the, the ethical considerations for mining the moon and mining the earth are actually rather different because we can't actually harm anyone else on the so, moon. Um, and actually this could, this could become a long-term argument in favour of sourcing as many raw materials as possible from the moon or from asteroids rather than from the earth because we'd be getting them from inert lumps of rock essentially mm. um, which might be preferable to strip mining the earth for the same materials. Now it's qu we're quite a long way from that being feasible because we don't have the infrastructure in place in space yet for that to be an option. But in the long term it could be an option and you could imagine a trade-off. Should we be sourcing our rare earth elements that we all need for our smartphones and whatnot by strip mining forests in Australia or, or the Amazon or should we be strip mining than inert lifeless rocks in space instead. And if we, if we do get to that stage, who owns those resources? Does that then become the next big question? So the, the question of the ownership of raw materials in space is a very important one. Uh, I mean, currently, all this activity is governed by the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Um, and this does have, I mean, this, lays, this is the foundation for international law in outer space, and it does prevent nations, independent nation states, from annexing bits of space, right? So a nation state on the Earth cannot claim the moon or, or an asteroid. This is prohibited. Uh, but um, the treaty was a product of its time and commercial activities like Elon Musk and SpaceX and commercial mining companies that might be interesting in mining the moon, none of this was envisaged as feasible in 1967. So the treaty is quiet on that. And therefore, it's ambiguous, and that's um, that's not desirable in a legal framework to have something that's ambiguous. Um, so the, the the legal framework does need to be developed to make it clear who owns what, what commercial companies may do, what they may not do. Scientifically, um, I'm very aware of the fact that there are some parts of space that are of more scientific value than others. Just as on the Earth, we have sites of special scientific interest. The same holds on, on the moon. Some areas are relatively scientifically uh, not so important. Some areas could be very important and they would need legal protection. And currently this legal protection, this framework doesn't exist. Mm. Well, I guess it's a, it's a massive pool of you know, potential resources as well once you start working with SpaceX going further and further out into space. I mean, if you were to start looking at that treaty and setting some boundaries, where do those boundaries end? Yes, so no one knows at the moment, and, yeah. that's, and that's why it's an area of international law that needs further development. And under your sort of many hats, um, you know, I mentioned for the European Space Agency and the Royal Astronomical Society, does any of the work that you do in those roles um, sort of involve any further looking at the treaty? Or? Yes, it does. I, I'm a member of um, something called the Hague Working Group on um, Space Resource Utilisation. Okay. This is a, a rather ad hoc uh, group set up um, uh, under the auspices of a uh, well, now Leiden, Leiden's University Institute of Space Law, um, uh, where there, it's a kind of ad hoc advisory group to try and assess the extent of the existing outer space treaties and where further development is required. Uh, my role on that is mostly a group of space uh, lawyers and, and diplomats. Uh, my, I think I'm the sole um, token scientist on it, actually, yes. to, to give a scientific overview. Uh, but that is an interesting, an interesting, um, an interesting group of people to be involved with. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, so, so yeah, to to that extent, I have this 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 
inputs into this, this yeah. legal these legal issues. Sure. And just finally, uh, to anyone listening to us today who's been thinking about coming along to Birkbeck to study um, astrobiology or planetary sciences, um, you've written before about why it is good to explore space and to look for aliens, I think was uh, your wording on that. And I'll put the link to the article in the description of this podcast. But in a nutshell, um, what do you and your students look at throughout the year? What kind of research uh, takes place at Birkbeck? Well, there are, there are several issues there. I mean, firstly, the, we, we operate this degree, a BSc degree in planetary science with astronomy, and that's an undergraduate degree. Um, it's unique, I think, in the UK in that it combines both astronomy and geology and planetary science. So it's not a pure astronomy degree uh, and it's not a pure, pure geology degree. It's, it's a mixture of geology and planetary science and, and astrophysics. Uh, and I think with it's, it's unique in having this combination. And I, I think anyone who's interested in both rocks and stars and planets and life in the universe, then this is a very interesting... T- I mean, I know I would say it because I, I'm responsible for it, but I, <laughs> I think it is a, a, a unique degree that covers all of these bases. Um, I mean, whereas if you were only interested in rocks, you do a geology degree, and if you were only interested in stars, you do an astronomy degree. But if you're interested in both, then I mean, th- this degree would be would be for you. The research size and our PhD work, then it's the it's it's mostly in the area of uh, well, I study the moon as, I, as I've said at length. Um, our colleagues are interested in other planetary bodies like comets and planet Mars, and then astrobiology is the search for life elsewhere in the universe. Um, where yeah we do have research interests it's mostly I mean astrobiology has grown to be a large discipline these days uh, and our our take on it in this department is kind of a geological focus and it involves finding places on the earth which are extreme environments on the earth like volcanoes or hydrothermal systems where only strange microorganisms can live mm. but which are analogues for the kind of places that may exist on mars or may have existed on mars or may exist on the underneath the icy crusts of satellites in the outer solar system so this is kind of analog work our, our work in astrobiology is finding analog environments on the earth which may be analogous to past or present analogues elsewhere in the solar system and then we can see what lives in these places on the earth what kind of instruments we need to detect this life in these environments and then by extrapolation use that to inform the kind of searches we do uh, on other planets. Sure. Um, now just just in answer to your, your the final point about being good for good good to search for <laughs> yeah I, I do I do have this view that I mean we don't know whether there's any life elsewhere in the universe or not yet and, and, and astrobiology is, is the science of trying to find out but but currently the earth is the only place in the universe we absolutely know has life on it um, and so we're trying to search for other other such places uh, and yeah I, I do take the view that this search the search in itself is important and beneficial regardless of what the answer is I mean we'd all like to find life elsewhere in the universe but we have to be realistic that there might not be any to find but I, I, th- I take the view that just searching for it um, is beneficial for two reasons really one, astrobiology is a very interdisciplinary science. If you're going to search for life in the universe, it forces people to get out of their intellectual silos that, that academia tries to force us into. It forces geologists to talk to astronomers, to talk to biologists, because you can't look for life in the universe unless you have 
you know, astrobiology is the interface of all these different sciences. And so it's, it's forcing, it's forging interdisciplinary links uh, and making scientists more broad-minded, I think, as they have to take on board other sciences um, uh, as part of our work in astrobiology. And so this producing more broad-minded scientists, especially more broad-minded undergraduate and graduate students who will then go out, hopefully, with more, uh, a wider breadth of knowledge I think this is a positive, be a positive benefit of astrobiology, even if, even if we don't actually find any life elsewhere. And then on top of all of that, I think there's a wider societal benefit in that if you searching for life elsewhere in the universe, it forces you to get out of your planetocentric, Earth-based uh, paradigm, uh, because you have to start seeing everything in a cosmic context. You have to look at the life you're looking for life on Mars or Alpha Centauri or somewhere. Suddenly, you sort of see the Earth in a more holistic way. You realise that here's the only inhabited planet that we know of in the universe, and we're kind of all in it together. And I'm, I'm naive enough to think that this, um, this perspective, sort of cosmic perspective on human affairs that astrobiology and space exploration naturally engender, um, ought to make us uh, more responsible citizens uh, on, on the Earth itself. So maybe that's a naive view, but I actually do take it quite seriously. No, I like that way of looking at it. And, it. and it's nice to think that perhaps you know, such a high-profile venture as with, you know, SpaceX's Falcon Heavy really is bringing the intention of the entire world to, to space exploration and to astrobiology. So, in in a sense, then it's turning the whole world's view back on planet Earth. And yes. And we can, yeah, think more, think yes. twice about the way we treat our own planet. Yes, yes. I mean, I, I do see that as a very positive benefit of astrobiology and space exploration. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Corbett. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Okay, thank you.